Good evening, everybody. We'll begin our Dhamma talk evening, this evening and every other evening for Dhamma talks, chanting the refuges and the precepts together. So if you have a printout, if you need that, if you don't have a printout and you need it, don't print it out right now, but have one ready for the next time. And again, everyone needs to stay muted. I'm sorry about that. It's much nicer to chant out loud as a group, but it is chaos sounding on Zoom. So I will chant, you will be able to hear me. And if you chant out loud with yourself, you'll hear yourself and me chanting together. Regarding the precepts, we'll chant five precepts for all of us. Is there anyone here who is practicing with eight precepts? Just put a finger up if you are, okay? One person, two people, okay? We will chant eight precepts. And anytime through this two weeks of practicing together, you're welcome to try out, we could say, the eight precepts or not. You can try them out. If they don't feel right for you, then let them go and just stick with the five or don't try them out. It's up to you. But because there are two people that are practicing with the eight precepts, on a regular basis, we will chant the eight precepts. Those of you that aren't practicing with eight precepts, just chant the five and I'll chant the other three. And so will the two people that are practicing with eight precepts. And we're chanting them in Pali. And again, the printout, if you haven't seen it, the piece of paper on the left side of it is Pali, which is the way we'll be chanting it. And the column on the right side is in English. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami, Sangam Saranam Gachami, 
Dutiampi buddham saranan gachami. Dutiampi dhammam saranan gachami. Dutiampi sangam saranan gachami. Tatiampi buddham saranan gachami. Tatiampi dhammam saranan gachami. Tatiampi sangam saranam gachami. Panatipata veramni sikapadam samadhi ami. Adinadana veramni sikapadam samadhi ami. Abrahmacharya veramni sikapadam samadhi ami. Musa vada. Veramni sikapadam samadhi ami. Sura maraya majapamadatana. Veramni sikapadam samadhi ami. Vikala bojana. Veramni sikapadam samadhi ami. Nacha gita. Vadita, Visukadasana, Malaganda, Vilepana, Dharana, Mandana, Vipusanathana, Veramni, Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami, Uchasayana, Mahasayana, Veramni, Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami. Everyone chanting the last. Dedication. Idam me silam maga falanyana sa pachayo o tu. So this evening's Dhamma talk is about Samvega, the Pali word that translates as, usually translates as spiritual urgency. So starting with a couple of questions. Why do we practice? Why do you practice? What brought you to a retreat like this particular one? And a few more questions, some of which have very likely visited your mind and heart. These questions, in fact, that Humans have felt and have asked forever and ever. 
regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, we could say. The deep questionings and deep yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death, its significance, its meaning? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be really, truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or, or how can I live gracefully and peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this constantly changing world, in this changing country, with all of the challenges within me and all around me, right here and now in this very life? What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat now? Our practice isn't about getting caught up in or, or mulling or stewing over these questions, but rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force, taken in as an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So as I've already mentioned, this talk is about an urgency to practice, an urgency to awaken, the Pali term being Sambhaga. But actually this term Sambhaga is, is somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist text, the force or the energy of Sambhaga is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And then the classical text goes on to say that Sambhaga is also about being one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed then by the systematic effort of one so moved. So again, Sambhaga is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. And I feel it's quite important at this point to note that spiritual urgency is an energy that's not at all fraught with any tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of heart, a quality of mind that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws of the way of things some degree of understanding how it is. So let's just take a look at this for a few moments. For some of you, some Vega may have 
been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round in daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of perception of change, the perception of anicca, impermanence, in sensing, seeing, and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. And also the death of someone close to us in our life can very certainly move us, move the heart towards the urgency to practice, towards this urgency to awaken. For some of us, the urgency may be experienced through feeling the enormity and, and maybe the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life right now during this COVID era. The suffering in life from this particular perspective. Or we may be connecting to the hardships in life via the big general picture and maybe also in a planetary sense related to our global warming crisis and the ignorance and, and greed that's driving so much of the governing here in the US and other places around the world, around the planet. Or Sam Vega may be experienced specifically through the various permutations of hardships and challenges in your life, your very life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or very directly experiencing bias or judgment and prejudice in relationship to race, in relationship to culture or economic circumstances or gender or age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences, and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not such a vague sense that it really, it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way. And an urge to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it may certainly be an emotional state that's somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. And one of the wonderful attributes of this stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself 
has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. An important point to recognize and acknowledge is that continuing all along the way of our practice, all along the years of our practice, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm just more an observer of such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world and the often jarring or violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this confusion and misunderstanding. Samvega is the movement of the heart. It's an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice and as well as outside of our formal practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart. It's a response to let go, to let go deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an ardency, an inspired heart-mind, a passion for spiritual practice, something that I'm sure, absolutely sure, that at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe what brought you here to this very retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's quite safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the great honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects for all of us here right now. Yogis, Dhamma students, and teachers. It's one of the wonderful aspects of living in an online practice community such as this. 
even if it's just for a short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? What along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and towards deepening our practice? There's a, a beautiful account of how Prince, Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city. After all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical, considering the very real, not just possibility, the very real actuality that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and the culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and very ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever, ever occurred with him before. To such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the ease and the comfort of his existence to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life. And really, isn't it the same case with us? that most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, 
much of the time we've reacted. Maybe reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. For instance, how we react by what we do to the various aspects of our aging bodies. Or maybe we've reacted to these messengers by pretending or believing that something else is happening. Until somehow, somehow, at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that we respond. We respond rather than react. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at, at some point to walk a different path than by constantly feeling overrun with, with sadness or anguish or fear, by being contracted with emotional experiences of attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. I mean, truly, aren't our closest surroundings full of stirring things? Stirring in the sense of some vega. If we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it because of our habits? The habits that often might render our vision dull, render our heart insensitive to varying degrees, or render us reactive to these stirring, very common happenings of life. And this can even happen to us in relationship to the Buddha's teaching. We certainly may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual, emotional, and spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. So what's the remedy? What is the remedy? The remedy is for the remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice practices by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us which if we look carefully, it constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever, ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, what is it? Which very simply put is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction 
in relationship to our experiences and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully and sensitively into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we'll begin to sense and see the cause, or we could say the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this what is often called suffering, which is the second of the four noble truths, which again, very simply put, is essentially a clinging relationship to what cannot be clung to. And the third truth, the third noble truth, the truth that in fact, there is a potential end to this unsatisfactoriness. There is a potential end to this suffering. There is a solution to our predicament. What's that? Well, easy to say, not so easy to do. The solution being to not cling, to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are and then act or respond to life from this place as it unfolds. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha. That each one of you, each one of us, all of us are engaged in walking along at our own pace, right here, right now, in this very life, in this retreat. As some of you have experienced, and sometimes maybe quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one of these, or more than one of these truths, can show up. For instance, with what might be a very fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear and anger and grief, or yearning or clinging, or the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive patterns. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed or maybe a new sight of some manifestation of poverty or, or prejudice or a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with, or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one, or one's own illness, or one's own bodily discomfort, or myriad, myriad other flavors of our human experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning 
the power to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind and heart directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very, very available for each of us all the time. For instance, a moment or maybe successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations or the constantly changing nature of mental states or a moment of really knowing that it's all, all impersonal. It's all anatta, the Pali word for not self, all impersonal. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With all of these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path to go deeper towards the end of suffering, or depending on circumstances for you, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday ordinary conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. And of course, we each have many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that in fact often exhibit this knowing and manifestation of Samvega. It's often part of what I hear from students during practice meetings. There are a number, quite a number actually, of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. This stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arahats, one of the enlightened disciples, or the stirring being done by one of the practicing devas. For those of you that may not know what a deva is, devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths of time, often long lengths of time, in very beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet totally free of suffering. 
there's a, a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland dwelling devas approach certain monks, certain bhikkhus who are practicing and bhikkhunis, monks and nuns who are practicing in these woodland thickets. So I'd like to share a few of these encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu who had gone to his spot in the forest, the monk who had gone to his spot, his spot in the forest for his day of practice was there. But all the while he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva, who inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, bhikkhu and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the bhikkhu speaking, or the deva speaking to the bhikkhu. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And in this case, lust, not necessarily meaning just sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for various objects, lust for various experiences. And then the David goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. Hard to cross indeed is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil with a shake flicks off the sticky dust. So a yogi, a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful with a shake flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue I'd like to share takes place shortly after the Buddha's death, shortly after his parinibbana, and his close attendant and his cousin, Ananda, had been strongly encouraged to attain arhantship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt responsible. He felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. Well, the forest dwelling deva there, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council would succeed only if Ananda attended as an arahant, came to provoke and to inspire Ananda for him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved instructing lay people. 
Then the Deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And here's the Devas speaking to Ananda. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, so he had the same family name of Gotama. They called him Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, said the Deva. Don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue because though of course we're not in the same position as Ananda was, we're certainly quite often caught up, quite often seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and the hullabaloo of various circumstances internally and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me, this, this little verse quite beautifully and quite clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. That's a good word, hullabaloo. <laughs> so one other verse. On one occasion, a certain nun, a certain bhikkhuni, was dwelling at Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all along like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good and desiring her and addressed her in verse. And this is the deva speaking to the bhikkhuni. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller subsiding on alms food with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then the bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And another verse regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming 
as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva who also inhabited the same woodland area, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vague in him, spoke these verses to the bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. I'll repeat that. You, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished, having let go of attending to things as permanent as self and as desirable because they're pleasurable. This was a monk who had relinquished this. You should reflect carefully, said the, said the deva. And meaning by that, the, the deva meant meaning attending to their true nature. Attending to the true characteristics with a very careful attention. And the Pali word for this is yani somanisakara. Attending to things as impermanent, as not self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. And then the bhikkhu goes on talking to this monk. By basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case, the teacher was the Buddha. By basing your thoughts on the teacher, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness. And then when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. And that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And now the very last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. <laughs> when the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, hmm. Hmm, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion, and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And the title of this little sutta is called The Thief of Scent. And the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given. This is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. 
And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. For, so for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? And the bhikkhu goes on, one who digs up the lotus stalk, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is this one not spoken to? And the deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to that, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, surely spirit, you understand me and you have compassion for me. Please, oh spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, and this was, when I first read this, I was so surprised by how this sutta ended. And this is what the deva says. We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. <laughs> then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So, it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here, right now, it seems that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. I mean, really, the teachings are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament, predicament is as relative today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is, is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy, virya in Pali. We experience courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith and the blossoming of confidence. Each of these qualities of heart and mind, energy, courage, faith, and confidence are essential. Essential in helping us to break through for what some of you might be some degree of a sense of timidity or some, some degree of hesitation, or maybe some fear or doubt, or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. And in speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, rouse yourselves, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? This meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease 
of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by dis-ease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourselves, says the Buddha. Sit up. Resolutely train yourself to attain peace. And he goes on. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, of confusion and anguish. And he goes on to say to all of us, then and now, negligence is a taint. So is the greater negligence growing from it by earnestness and understanding. Withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is, we could say, about keeping one foot out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, the ground of Samvega. The Buddha was so, so confident in the solution he found to the predicament of this unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment by moment by moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment -moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of suffering the first noble truth, from which, which from this perspective we could say is actually a gift. It's actually a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experience of things. And then from this gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, out there somewhere, not coming from some outside experience or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here. In here, meaning in the craving and the clinging and the fear present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there is an end to the suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way 
to that release by the development of particular noble and beautiful qualities of heart, noble and beautiful qualities of mind. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila and pala, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy, happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities, all of these capacities, really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency. The spiritual urgency that at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution, a solution that's within the power of every, every human being, a solution that those of you here have certainly have a growing faith in, possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories and many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But I think most importantly, that you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, for many of us, it in a sense is what gives us the energy to live. And the last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer, Annie Diller. It's a story that I've found to be really, really inspiring and that invoked a, quite a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago. And that continues to move me every single time I reread it. So I'll share a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week, I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one before. He was 10 inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft furred alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes that I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silence 
as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into silence, into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else, a clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it felled the forest, moved the fields and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week and I already don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading, but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should and I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your necessity and not let it go. 
to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it. Let it seize you up aloft, even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter over fields and woods lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. So in this light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and his lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to exhort them to keep going on the path. This particular quote comes from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from a Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I have found to be quite inspiring. And these are the Buddha's words. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether animate or inanimate, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. Said the Buddha. And so, in closing the talk this evening, this morning, we come back around to our opening question. As Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? 
Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down in the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Let's sit together silently for just just a couple of moments. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So at the end of our Dhamma talk, evenings and mornings, we'll chant the sharing of blessings. Again, uh, something you can download if you haven't yet, so that for the next Dhamma talk you have it available. And some of you know this, it's in English. It is a translation out of the Pali done by the, uh, some, quite a some years ago from done by the monks and the nuns at the Amravati Monastery in England. So chanting it out loud at home with me, uh, you'll hear me and yourself. <laughs> Through the goodness that arises from my practice, 
May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha has, is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.